0: Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from The Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we cover the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. And now we're here to provide quick daily updates on Alec Murdoch's highly anticipated double murder trial in Colleton County. This is Eric Russell, and I'm here with a bonus episode of Understand Murdoch. We've gotten several questions throughout the Alec Murdoch double murder trial, so we figured it was time for another listener mailbag bonus episode for you guys. I'm here with public service and watchdog editor Glenn Smith, who has been answering most of the questions that we have received so far.
1: Thanks, Eric. Uh, glad to be here. We're now here in the fifth week of the Alec Murdoch uh, double murder trial, and it's it's been quite a riveting affair, particularly since... Uh, Murdoch himself took the stand. Very compelling stuff. And we've gotten quite a few questions uh, before and after that. So be happy to go through uh, what the readers want to know.
0: All right, let's uh, get right into it. This one here is from Annette, and it is about cell phones. Um, She says, has there been any testimony about whether they can determine if any other cell phones were pinging in and around the estate at any point near the time of the deaths.
1: Yeah, this trial has featured a ton of really technical uh, testimony throughout. Uh, one thing they did mention during the testimony was cell phones. Sled agent David Owen, who is the lead investigator on the case, he testified that investigators did a general search of other phones in the Mazelle area. Mazelle is the hunting estate where Maggie and Paul were killed. Uh, they tested that on the night of the killings, and they found only two other phones, both of which belong to first responders, Owen said.
0: All right, and we have another here from Annette, does the evidence suggest at all that the shootings took place after Alec Murdoch left to see his mother? What is the range of the time of death?
1: Okay, good question. Throughout Murdoch's trial, prosecutors have repeatedly reminded jurors of a video that placed Alec at the crime scene, a set of dog kennels on the Murdoch's spacious hunting property. with the two victims just four minutes before Maggie and Paul's phones stop answering calls or text. They contend the phones going quiet indicate the time Maggie and Paul died. Uh, in repeated interviews with investigators, Murdoch repeatedly denied being at the kennels before the killings. Uh, but upon taking the witness stand on February 23rd this week, he acknowledged that was a lie. He said his distrust of slip. And the paranoia fueled by his long-running drug addiction caused him to lie, and then he later felt trapped in his falsehood and kept repeating it to family, friends, and the police, obviously. Now, when he gets on the witness stand in his own defense on the 23rd, he says, yeah, I was down there. I admit it. I lied. I'm so, so sorry about that. So... February 24th, this Friday, prosecutor Creighton Waters asked Murdoch whether he could have left the kennels by 8.47 p.m. That's uh, 75 seconds after Paul stopped filming this video. Murdoch said it certainly could have been, but he thinks it was sooner. Murdoch said he didn't see a 300 blackout rifle, which was used to kill Maggie, or a 12-gauge shotgun down at the kennels. Paul was killed by a pair of shotgun blasts. Murdoch agreed it took him about two minutes to drive back to the main house, and he arrived about 8.49 p.m. He probably went straight to the couch to lie down, he said, and the TV was on. Now, prosecutors say Maggie and Paul were shot around 8.49 p.m., as this is when both of their phones stopped communicating. Data from Murdoch's Chevrolet Suburban shows he left Mazzell for his mother's house in Almeda at 9.02 p.m. Waters asked Murdoch whether he heard anything at all between 8.49 p.m. and 9.02 p.m. Murdoch said no.
0: Okay. Trisha asks, is there any information or proof that Murdoch was taking opioids or is it just his say-so? He did not physically look like he was an abuser, nor did he act like it.
1: Hospital records released after his treatment for the Labor Day weekend shooting shed some light on this to begin with. The records indicated that Murdoch confessed to a nurse that he was using pain medication recreationally. Along with chewing tobacco, tested positive at the hospital for opiates and barbiturates, the records show. Documents show Murdoch grew increasingly impatient during his hospital stay, even as his brothers and son visited at his bedside. He complained of head pain. He rubbed his scalp and said that three painkillers the hospital treated him with aren't helping anymore. Shortly after leaving the hospital, he checked himself into this rehab center. Um, now that the trials get underway, uh, there was indications that his son Paul had confronted him, um, sent him a message about a month before the shootings saying that uh, his, his wife Maggie had discovered uh, several pills or bags of pills in Murdoch's computer bag. Murdoch himself his on the stand said repeatedly that he'd struggled long and hard. He'd started out with hydrocodone, switch to Oxycontin and his his addiction grew worse and worse over time there's been some testimony through him and also his son Buster that he had sought uh, rehab treatment back uh, as far back as 2017 2018 he said he'd also uh, detoxed a few times at home that he'd never gone into a rehab setting but had cleaned himself out a few times uh, apparently on a few occasions with with Maggie's help Uh, Just on the 24th, he got a little bit more into the extent of his abuse. As I mentioned earlier, uh, investigators apparently were told that he had spent 50 grand a week on drugs, sending it to his distant cousin and former law client, Eddie Smith, uh, who denies that he was the drug dealer, by the way. But Murdoch says that he was ingesting somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams of oxycodone. Uh, daily, like upwards of sixty pills or more, um, said it just basically controlled his life, and he was just shoveling pills into his mouth uh, from the moment he woke up till the time he went to bed, um, and it it really depended on how much he ingested the night before was how much he would need. Now, you know, we talked on the side with some doctors and other folks who who just were stunned with the staggering amount of drugs, wondering how he had not OD'd, particularly since you know we know he was an alcohol drinker as well, and how he could have functioned in society with that many pills on board. Other people say, well, you do build a tolerance over time, and you know if it's going on for two decades, if his liver could survive that, then perhaps that's what it took to just have him maintain through the day.
0: Okay. Um... Judy wrote in to ask about life insurance. Here's what she said. I haven't heard any information about life insurance policies that could potentially be collected on Paul and Maggie. Has that been mentioned?
1: Prosecutors have introduced no evidence so far to indicate either Paul or Maggie had life insurance policies in their names. Witnesses during the trial have also indicated no knowledge of life insurance policies for the pair and Murdoch on the stand adamantly denied that uh, there was any sort of life insurance coverage on either of them. Uh, He did say that he had uh, 12 Twelve million dollars. I think we'd previously been told in documents that it was somewhere in the ten million dollar range. He said he had twelve million dollars. He was the breadwinner for the family, and he he took out substantial um, coverage to uh, ensure that they would be provided for if something happened to him.
0: All right, and the next question is from Mary. I've listened to every podcast, watch every documentary, and I don't believe I've seen or heard who was killed first, Paul or Maggie.
1: Prosecutors and investigators say the evidence establishes that Paul was killed first with a shotgun, blasted as he stood in the feed room of the dog kennels at Mazelle. Maggie was shot next with a semi-automatic rifle, a 300 blackout, as she ran away. Defense attorney Dick Harpulian and others have said uh, she had fallen and was lying prone when the killer fired the fatal shot into the back of her head, the evidence shows. Neither showed signs of defensive wounds, though Maggie had DNA under her fingernails from a person who has not been identified. Early testimony in the case also revealed that strands of brown hair were found in Maggie's hand, but neither side has addressed that hair in detail to date.
0: All right. And Mary had another question. How did they open Maggie and Paul's phones? Can they tell if Alec or Maggie deleted messages to or from her and Alec or to or from any of their friends?
1: So Maggie's phone was found a half mile down Mazelle Road from where the June 7th, 2021 killings took place at Mazelle. It was located the following day using the Find My iPhone app on a family member's phone. Authorities so far have not determined how it ended up there. Alec Murdoch has said, and it's come up during the trial, that he was the one who provided investigators, possibly through his brother, John Marvin, with the passcode needed to access the phone's contents. They determined that their phone locked at 849 p.m. and didn't unlock until around 1 p.m. on June 8th, the following day, when investigators found it on the side of the road. Testimony so far has not indicated that anything was deleted from her phone, but defense attorney Dick Harputlian elicited testimony establishing that anyone with a passcode to her phone could have accomplished that feat before it was found. Investigators were initially unable to unlock Paul's phone after the killings. SLED agents eventually brought Paul's phone to Jonathan Van Houten, a civilian employee of the Secret Service, in March 2022 because he had the tools to unlock it according to testimony. Van Hooten was able to unlock Paul's phone using a specialized application, and this enabled what's known as a brute force process where he guessed the 22-year-old six-digit passcode. That code was associated with Paul's birthday, he testified. The man extracted the phone's contents for SLED, but SLED did the analysis. Uh, now, Dylan Hightower, he's an investigator with the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office. He's testified about call logs he pulled separately from Alec Murdoch's phone and from the telecommunications. Company Verizon. When comparing the two records, Hightower testified, all but two of Murdoch's 75 calls from the date of the slangs had been deleted from the phone. Hightower said he couldn't tell who deleted them or why. Investigators downloaded the contents of Murdoch's phone three days after the slangs. On the stand, Murdoch denied uh, deleting any of those messages on his own.
0: All right. Thank you for that, Glenn. Uh, It's always good to answer some of the readers and listeners' questions. But other than that, we will get back into the regular flow of the trial, and we will be back with more episodes of Understand Murdoch on a daily basis until this thing is over.